This is Lisa Murkowski, Chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee with Murkowski's Message Podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Murkowski's Message. This is Friday, May the 29th. I appreciate you all joining me. I am currently in Alaska. I am on day nine of a 14-day quarantine uh, here here in Anchorage. Um, Quarantine can be a a challenge, but I think it's made a little bit easier when we have some of the great weather that we have had uh, here in in South Central and really around the state. Um, It is, it's part of the the summer that we welcome every year as people are able to get outside and go camping and hiking and just enjoying all, all that Alaska has to hold. But we also know that as, as the weather warms and uh, as, the, as the snow disappears and people are out around campfires, that we also see an increase in the risk of wildfires. So today... We have an opportunity to discuss some of the some of the challenges that face Alaska firefighters. We are joined uh, this morning by our state forester and the director of the Alaska Division of Forestry, Chris Mesh. Chris has been um, working uh, serving Alaska for over three decades now, 36 years serving the state, 21 of those uh, with the state of Alaska. And, and so it is good to have you uh, with us this morning, Chris, to talk about some of the, some of the issues that, uh, that we face as a state, um, what we might anticipate with this year's fire season. But, but before we do, I just want to acknowledge that um, our, our prayers are with uh, those uh, state forestry um, individuals that uh, went down in an airplane in Antioch uh, this week. Um, we understand that they are they're in the process of, of recovery, but we're keeping them and their families in our prayers and just wanted, wanted you to know that. We thank them for the work that they do that's so, uh, so important, so invaluable. Um, Thanks, Senator. We appreciate that. Well, and, and thank you, um, because we know that, uh, that the men and women who uh, are there to serve us um, uh, when it comes to, to dealing and battling with fires, we know that they are out there uh, on the front lines and that in Alaska, uh, getting to the front lines doesn't mean you hop in, in your, your truck and, and you're there. Um, how we move our fire crews around um, can be very challenging, and it requires good skilled aviators. But as we know, um, things happen, and uh, uh, we just want you to know that we appreciate uh, the work that uh, that our our um, fire crews do every day, and 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 certainly for your leadership as as part of all of that. Well, thank you, and we'll certainly pass that information uh, down through the ranks. Well, thanks, thanks. So let's let's begin, really, um, kind of generally, your thoughts on the wildfire activity outlook for, for this summer. 
you know, last year um, we saw more acres burn here in the state than than they had in the entire lower 48. We had the Swan Lake fire uh, on the Kenai, which was the most expensive and, uh, as I understand, the most heavily staffed fire in the nation. We've already had a few fires here at home already. Um, so what what should Alaskans expect for, for this year's fire season? Well, that's a, a very good question, and we are always in the fire world uh, asking ourselves that, uh, that same question. And we do have what's called uh, predictive services that uh, tries to look at the long-term uh, patterns and uh, weather and make predictions for the year. Uh, this year, because in part of the uh, healthy snowfall we had around Alaska, uh, much of it above normal, uh, that created a below normal uh, early season forecast for at least uh, much of the interior in May. And then for June, July, and August, uh, right now the long-term forecast is what they're calling a normal year. I think that's probably better to say a typical year. I'm not sure what's normal anymore <laughs> with some of the weather yeah. variables we have to deal with. Uh, so that's good news because last year, of course, we had a, the drought, especially down in the Kenai and the Matsu, and we had very uh, uh, difficult conditions from the weather uh, aspect of things. And so this year right now, it's looking to be a more typical year. Uh, but even in a typical year, the state still burns about 1.2 million acres. And so that's a lot of acreage. and. Uh, so, uh, but we're prepared and, and ready to deal with that if that's what happens. So I know that um, up in Fairbanks you had a couple really, really warm days already. Uh, I know that for, for folks down in southeast, down in the Tongass, you know, where we usually don't think about forest fires because Tongass is a rainforest, that they too have had some really nice, um, good spring weather. but. You're saying that that necessarily isn't a predictor, if you will, of, of, of what you might anticipate for the season. So you're saying um, when you think that this will probably fall in the normal or typical um, uh, wildfire season, you're not seeing any particular areas of the state that might have um, higher threat than others? No, at this time, based on uh, many different uh, parameters we look at, uh, the states, uh, there are no areas in the state that have a higher risk uh, than any other portion of the state. So it's kind of a neutral, neutral outlook, if you will. Uh, of course, mm -hmm. that can change quickly. It doesn't take very many days here, especially in the interior of nice sunny weather, uh, to dry things out and really change that. And of course, what really gets most of our bigger seasons going is the lightning season. And I saw a really interesting statistic uh, the other day that just two days ago we entered a 70-day window uh, where we get 90% of our lightning strikes in Alaska. And so, uh, so really the lightning season is just getting started. We just finished what we call the human-caused season, which is brown up, you know, April, May. And uh, so uh, the big years usually are driven by a lightning event after a, a long, warm, uh, dry period. So that's what we'll watch for. Hopefully that won't occur. But uh, mm -hmm. like last year, that happened in 2015. Same thing. We had uh, one about a 10-day, two-week period of very hot and dry weather. And then uh, dry lightning storms came through, and that just really lit up the state. And that, that year, too, in 2015, we were more than half the national acres. It burned. We burned 
a little over 10 million acres that year nationally, and we were 5.2 million in 2015. And then, as you said, we we're about we we're more than half, more than half here this last year. So, those aren't. I don't like. <laughs> I'd rather not have those statistics here in Alaska. But in the last five years, we've had two of the highest uh, seasons that we've had. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, I think you recognize you you know full well because you live it. But but we also recognize that. Um, you know, the best laid plans don't necessarily uh, come out as we would have hoped or planned because you know, Mother Nature intervenes. Um, uh, you mentioned the, the, the lightning strikes. Uh, you get just the right, right uh, wind at the right time um, with low humidity and, and things happen. And so uh, your job is a very complicated one when it comes to wildfire management. Well, COVID-19 pandemic has, has caused further complications to that management. You've got, you've got uh, firefighters who um, are, are putting their lives on the line every day to protect us. And, and so uh, we, we respect that, we honor that, but we also know that we have an obligation to protect them from the virus so that they can safely fight fires, return to their families when the fires are out. And so let's talk a little bit about what, how, how wildfire management is made further complicated um, uh, because of what we're having to put in place necessarily uh, because of the, the, the COVID-19 um, pandemic just in terms of how we, how we house fire crews, how we move them, uh, how we feed them. Um, how, how, are you, how are you adapting your, your suppression strategies and, and really the camp, the crew camp strategy um, as we're dealing with COVID-19? Well, that's a, a really good question, Senator. Uh, we've, of course, been working on this for a while now, um, and it's been a, a national effort, and then it's uh, scaled down uh, to each uh, individual state, you know, uh, uh, developing uh, how they can best uh, protect both our employees from COVID-19 as well as the public when we're engaging with them when we're doing uh, suppression uh, work. Uh, and as you know, we use incident management teams to, to manage large project fires, like a type 1 fire or a type 2, which are our most complex incidents, usually involve urban interface, you know, where you have lots of people. And so there's just a whole host of things that need considered. And I'll be honest, it was a bit daunting for all of us, I think, to try and figure out how, how could we operate with COVID as an overlay to the things that we normally do. Uh, which are already inherently dangerous. We added this other, this other element. Um, so we've done a lot of planning uh, at the national and state level by standing up uh, our own internal incident management team that's focused just on this COVID topic. And so we've uh, got a Division of Forestry handbook that's got the mitigation measures we're going to take. A lot of this is how do you communicate it to everybody so that they understand what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and why we're going to do it. 
you know, those are kind of three key things. And uh, so for some examples, uh, of course, uh, aggressive initial attack, everyone in the country is really stressing that, that, that we're going to get right on fires. We, we always do, but uh, we're even going to be more aggressive, if you will. Uh, aviation will play a key role in that, uh, and uh, more aggressive use of aviation resources, uh, perhaps sooner than we normally would, uh, just to really try and catch fires and, and catch them at the initial attack or extended attack stage. If a project does go into what we call the project fire stage, uh, which is usually 72 hours after a fire is started, if we don't catch it, that's usually when you're going to start calling it uh, type, you know, two, type three, type one fire. Um, things get more more complicated. Of course, PPE is a key part of this, but uh, in the real world, it's also difficult. You're not probably going to be wearing a mask on the fire line. Uh, it's just uh, it's that's the recommendation, but uh, in practice, with after-action reviews that have happened, mm -hmm. uh, masks a, a difficult thing to use actually on the line. But when you're in camp or being transported in a helicopter or a vehicle, you know, masks, gloves, you know, PPE will be uh, one of the requirements. Uh, all the hygienic measures will be in place. Uh, more washing stations in the camps. Uh, the meals will be not served traditionally like we would. We'd often have salad bar and, and a line that you'd go through to, to, to get your meal. All the meals will be individually boxed and handed out that way with washing stations pre-pickup of the meal. And uh, so a lot of precautions are put in place to try and uh, uh, limit, uh, you know, that human contact in the camp. Um, for us uh, in engines, uh, like I mentioned, we'll be wearing masks but those engines get washed uh, down both exterior and interior after each shift and during the shift as needed. Uh, same thing with the helicopters and the planes. So just a lot of extra measures uh, have been put in place. And I, I've just scratched the surface for you. There's mm -hmm. quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I know as I've had conversations with the chief of the U.S. Forest Service, Chief Christensen, you know, we have talked about um, uh, about the Alaska fire crews, these, these come out of our um, of our of our villages up north. Some some pretty exceptional um, fire crews, uh, but we also know that um, uh, we uh, often have lower 48 crews that come up uh, to the state to help us out, and um, one of one of the realities that we're dealing with. In fact, I mentioned it at the outset of this podcast. If you're coming from the outside, you've got a mandatory 14-day quarantine. That's in place now. We don't know how long that stays in place, but we also want to make sure that whether or not we have a quarantine from out-of-state folks, uh, that we, we, we have some level of, of assurance that you're not going to be bringing crews from um, outside the state uh, who might be um, uh, might be dealing with the virus themselves, either with symptoms or asymptomatic, uh, and and that is something that um, uh, I know you have been working on. So if you can tell us about what's going on with uh, with firefighter uh, testing for for COVID nineteen. Yeah, you bet. Uh, and, and we are definitely kind of in the forefront of that here in Alaska and for some of the very reasons you just just mentioned. And um, 
so we do have worked very closely with the unified command team that uh, Governor Dunlavely established uh, as soon as uh, this uh, COVID crisis, you know, hit Alaska, and that includes uh, uh, HSS, our, our Health and Social Services uh, Department and Division, is uh, one of the agencies that's, that's part of that unified command. And so we've worked very closely with them, them setting up this protocol that does, uh, doesn't require testing, it's voluntary testing, and that's been a key, key word choice to get our federal partners to, uh, to agree uh, to this process and expectations. And so every resource order that we place, which is how we order things that we need uh, from crews to individual people to an aircraft to an engine, will have a separate sheet of paper that uh, outlines the expectations for an assignment in Alaska. And that's this uh, testing, voluntary testing piece. And then, of course, all the mitigation measures that are in our handbooks and other documents that we've published and will make available to incoming staff. But right now, we have testing set up at uh, two locations. Uh, one is at Anchorage International. The other is at Fairbanks International Airport, which are the, the gateway entry points for any of the uh, firefighters coming into the state. And those are being run uh, through a contract that uh, HSS has set up with two private companies, two labs, uh, Beacon and Capstone, that have testing uh, set up there. Uh, firefighters will come in, uh, have their tests, and currently the plan is to, uh, if it's not a, an emergency and we need them right on the line right now, they'll uh, go into quarantine for anywhere from 24 to no longer than 48 hours so the test results are available. We expect most of that to be less than 24. And then they'll be released for work. If there's a, an emergency where we need their services sooner, they will still have the test, but they'll be released to go right to the incident to get to work. As soon as we have the results, uh, if we did get any positive results, we would then you know, do the con contact tracing and isolate the individual and take you know, measures to uh, deal with that situation. So currently, uh, that's what we have set up, uh, and that is much different than really anywhere else in the country right now. And so uh, we've been working with our federal partners, in particular BLM, to uh, make sure they are uh, comfortable uh, and agreeable to this uh, scenario. Yeah. We appreciate that and appreciate the steps. I think most most Alaskans um, know very well the the, the stories from the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic uh, where you had several uh, Alaska uh, native villages that were almost completely uh, wiped out and, and recognizing, again, that so many of our fires that these crews will be out on uh, will be in, in remote areas, um, but, uh, but with contact um, uh, on occasion from, from with those, uh, again, from from our, our smaller, more rural communities. So we just, we recognize and respect the vulnerable populations and, um, and working through these protocols uh, in advance, I think is something that uh, is just wise, hopefully. Uh, hopefully um, we, will, we will be um, uh, working again to, to, uh, to ensure that we're just not seeing an increase in, in cases, but um, this has been a challenge on, on many different levels, and so we, we appreciate what, uh, what the state of Alaska, working with our federal uh, partners, are doing as 
as you help um, face the the annual disasters that we have in our state when it comes to to fires, uh, and then coupled with what we're dealing with with COVID. So moving off of that and, and recognizing again that okay, many of our so many of our fires in the state of Alaska are, are started um, uh, naturally um, through, for instance, lightning strikes. Um, but we also know uh, that particularly in the beginning of the season, um, so many of these fires that we see in, in the first place are, are human-caused. What should we be doing as Alaskans to, to prevent fires as well as to protect um, protect our homes and our families um, from, from, from wildfire? Uh, great question, and uh, as you may know, uh, we had a pretty aggressive uh, program this spring in Alaska where we had a uh, burn permit suspension in place for most of the state mm -hmm. uh, for most of May, and the idea behind that was to help us reduce human-caused starts because that's the primary driver of fire season at that time of year, and I'm happy to say we had about a 10% reduction in the number of fires uh, from our, our five-year average uh, this spring uh, because of that, and so people were paying attention, and I, I think that's one of the key things I would stress is that uh, to help reduce the risk around your own home and for your own family or business, uh, pay attention to the weather, uh, you know, what's going on, if there's a fire weather watch issued or a red flag warning for your area. And certainly any time during the year, you should be doing firewise principles, which is uh, uh, a, a list of things, if you will, that you can do to your house or your business to help it be more, uh, less fire prone and more likely to survive a wildland fire event. And it's a lot of very simple things, uh, and uh, you can go, you could Google that, uh, FireWise, and it'll bring you to websites that will have all kinds of information for homeowners that they can look at. Uh, we have foresters that will come out and do inspections of your home and make recommendations with a checklist format. We even have some cost-share programs for homeowners uh, to help them, um, you know, do some of the things that are, are recommended. And then I would also add... Um, you know, if you do have a wildland fire that threatens uh, your community and uh, we use an evacuation process that's, that's called Ready, Set, Go. And um, one of the key things to be ready is to have a plan for your family. And I like to always refer to what we call either the five Ps or the seven Ps, and you should think about these things. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the list here. The seven Ps are people, pets, papers, prescriptions, personal computer, photos, and phone. And that's when you're getting ready for something like this. You should be thinking about those seven Ps and having those things uh, taken care of, you know, ready to load into the car, uh, already perhaps boxed up and easy to get to, not buried down in the basement somewhere. So those seven Ps are really key things people could be doing right now just to be mentally prepared and hopefully they'll never have to do a ready, set, go. But if you do, it'll go a lot smoother for you if you do things ahead of time. Well, that's good advice and, and, and also very helpful to think about, okay, what is it that if, if I needed to, to evacuate my home quickly, what is, what is my checklist? And so that's, that's good. That's helpful. Um, very quickly, 
just because when we talk about fire risk in Alaska, um, a spruce bark beetle kill has always been uh, an issue for us, particularly in certain areas. Are you seeing um, higher risk this year than, than normal? Are we at average? Well, what's your sense? Well, that, as you said, that uh, spruce bark beetle creates additional challenges for us because once those trees die, a lot more sunlight gets into the forest floor and it really increases the grass, what, what, what we call the light fuels. And so you can get quite a bit more uh, light fuel in the understory of the forest, which is, tends to be more flammable, so it's easier to have a fire start. Um, and then the trees themselves can throw off more fire brands and create spotting in, a, in an incident. So in an area that has had bark beetle uh, impact, th those fires can be a little more challenging because of those you know, factors I just mentioned. So the risk in general would be higher than if it were a green forest. Um, and there's not, unfortunately, much we can do to make it green again uh, quickly. So it's really being, again, aware of the things we talked about under FireWise. If you live in an area that's been impacted by the bark beetle, it's, it's even more critically important to do those FireWise principles, which will be remove those dead trees, you know, keep the grass mowed or watered, you know, things that are a lot of common sense. But uh, mm -hmm. if you pay attention to those things, it really reduces the risk to both you and your family and your community. Well, Chris, I mentioned at the outset your, your years, your decades of, of public service. Um, and uh, for, for 15 years, which is a pretty good, pretty good haul, you have been Alaska's state forester. And we're very, very thankful for, for your service. So they say that retirement is on the horizon. So. Um, Tell us what that actually means for you and for your family, and uh, and just really uh, give you a quick moment to reflect on your experiences as Alaska's uh, chief uh, forester. Well, thank you, Senator. Um, it's uh, it's a little daunting, I'll be honest, to think about, and because there's always more things you would like to do, and the people I work with here in this division are just a, an excellent. A set of peers and colleagues. Uh, you know, it's a very mission-oriented organization, both in the forestry side of it as well as the, uh, the wildland fire side of it. So it really is hard for me just to uh, step away from that. But it, but it is it is time. We we all don't live forever, and there's other things to do in life. So sometime uh, either this fall or early winter, I I will retire, and uh, so uh, lots of different. Uh, thoughts about what to do with that time. One of them includes a sailboat back on the Great Lakes, and uh, ah. my wife and I are, are both from uh, that area. We wouldn't leave Alaska, but uh, have a lot of family back there, so we'd spend a couple months each summer with the goal of circumnavigating the Great Lakes over the course of a couple of summers. So uh, I was in the process of buying a boat, but COVID prevented me from traveling in early May to do the final uh, sea trials oh, yeah. on that boat. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyways, it's delayed a little bit. Uh, I think we'll still go still go ahead with the purchase, but uh, it's in a little uh, port town called Agre, Michigan, on uh, Lake Huron. And uh, so, at any rate, that's that's part of the plan. And uh, I'm sure I'll stay uh, busy with volunteer efforts and other things. But uh, um, I wanted to make sure uh, the division was, uh, you know, we had. Uh, 
a good transition plan, if you will, succession plan, and uh, good leadership in place. And uh, so anyways, uh, it'll be a little bittersweet, but uh, it's time. 15 years has been a great, great career, and uh, I've served five governors during that time. And um, so I have a lot of good memories, and also a lot of memories I'd, I'd what happened yesterday with the aviation incident? I wish I didn't have, but uh, mm -hmm. but those things do happen, and we've uh, uh, we're the better for it in the end. So so thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, I, I appreciate I appreciate our conversation, but but um, uh, truly appreciate your your years of, of service. We had an opportunity to invite you back to Washington, D.C. To, to, to testify uh, before the Energy and Natural Resources Committee um, on forestry-related issues and fire-related fire issues. And, and you bring uh, with you not only uh, a title as, as, the, uh, as Alaska State Forestry, but you bring a, a credibility and a reputation that is, is respected um, uh, throughout not only our state, um, but at the national level as, as well. And it is well earned, and uh, your retirement is, is probably uh, very well earned. So know that uh, we wish you well. I know that I will have plenty of opportunities um, uh, until you, you bid your final goodbyes to, to be able to, to speak with you as we continue to get updates on what's happening in Alaska, but uh, again, I, I thank you very genuinely for, for your years of, of good, good work. So, Chris, thank you for being on, on the podcast this morning. Um, and for those of you listening, thank you. Appreciate that you have joined this episode of Murkowski's Message Podcast. And in upcoming episodes, we're going to be discussing oil and gas markets as well as other energy and natural resource matters. So until then, be safe and be healthy. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm.